0: Welcome to Herbal Explorations, a podcast hosted by Wilson Lau of New Herbs. Each week, we speak to leading experts about what's happening in the herbal industry.
1: I would like to welcome Bill Chaffee, my great friend. Um, it's a pleasure to get a chance to catch up with you. Um, he's currently in, uh, with the Rick Scalzo Botanical Research Institute at the Southwest College of Naturopathic Medicine. And health sciences—what a mouthful! But can you yes. tell us more about the institute and what it does? What you guys do over there in this mission? Yeah, absolutely,
0: Wilson. It's great to see you again too, and uh, you know, I, I look forward to the times when we can get together and uh, missing missing doing that with the industry. But I know we're we're getting close, and uh, so yeah, the so anyway, the Rick Scalzo Institute for Botanical Research is housed at uh, Southwest College of Naturopathic Medicine. Yeah, it's a mouthful. Um, and, you know, it's a part of a, a transformational gift that, uh, Rick made to Southwest College to further botanical research. And, uh, so through, through that gift, we were able to build a uh, molecular biology and analytical chemistry labs and, uh, a biosafety level two, uh, cellular and viral culture lab. And so, um, the thought is to, Further the advancement of evidence-based medicine by looking at cellular mechanisms of actions of plants, uh, safety aspects of, of the plants by testing uh, whole plant extracts in bioassay models. So in vitro cellular models. Um, and so that's that's uh, part of what we do. Obviously, there's many different aspects. We do uh, have the ability to do uh, complete isolation of uh, plant extracts and prepare uh, standards and have uh, standard column fractionation and then different uh, machinery assisted purification of uh, natural products. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's very detailed, but I think it's the kind of research that we really need to be doing to uh, understand plant medicines and provide that evidence, right? That that uh, everybody's looking for for uh, safety
1: and efficacy. Yeah. And I think, you know, you guys can do quite a bit and I've seen some of your setup is quite impressive. And I think the ability to do contract R and D with people that know plants to come up with evidence to fit the evidence based model of in the US via the prism of what's required by the FDA is amazing. Like it really is um, unique. Uh In for this industry and for the type of stuff you guys can do,
0: yeah, and you know. Because we have uh, the benefit of having naturopathic physicians and herbalists and uh, Dr. Jeffrey Langland, a molecular biologist and former um, uh, vaccine developer for years, he worked on vaccine development with his uh, molecular biology degree. And and he came over to what he said is the light side to take a look Mm -hmm. at how actual plant extracts have many of these same mechanisms of actions um, uh, against viruses. He kind of fell in love with a plant called Caricinia purpurea, which is a purple pitcher plant. And so it's a carnivorous plant, um, very interesting plant, uh, can't produce its own nitrogen as if uh, as with other plants has a hard time with that. So it eats bugs to digest those and get a nitrogen source. So um, at any rate, looking at antiviral capacities of that plant um, that really led him to think that, yeah, actually plants are very effective at uh, some of these. Of course, he's looking at in vitro models, but then was able to scale some of those small products up and, and apply them uh, in small clinicals at the Southwest uh, College campus. So um, yeah, so we, we use that and we also, so that came from looking at uh, a, a treatment that was purported to be used for smallpox in the 1800s um, using that plant. So uh, yeah, interesting interesting work for sure, Wilson. It's, uh, it's different work than I've done in the past, but uh, like you said, knowing the plants and working with brands that understand the value of, of the efficacy of their products, because we are so limited in what we can actually say, um, which is a good thing in some ways. The DeShay restrictions give us the freedom to continue to sell these, but really at the end of the day, the product has to work, right? For people yeah. to come back and, and try
1: it again. Yeah, I think like you said, the key is efficacy, right? And. We're limited. We're, we are limited in what we can say and not, right? Like, I think let's sort of go take a step back and look at, you know, what the FDA actually governs and how, what product classes this is at a very high level, right? There's the food in the F, which is the F and FDA, drugs is the D and the association, but it also has the com- cosmetics. So it's the FD and C act actually. And, you know, botanicals can be used. In all three categories under food, it would be used, you know, as a food or as a subclass uh, dietary supplements, which many of us are extremely familiar with. And that's the part of the industry where the most familiar with. But there's also under drugs, there's this class of drugs called botanical drugs, which is different than our traditional way of thinking about drugs. And I think that's really important because now if you want to say that your product, you know, cures X or treats X, you can say it if you meet those requirements. I think, you know, that's sort of the interesting part of it that we sort of don't really see day to day being discussed. And, you know, is the work you're doing there more focused on this botanical drug model, dietary ingredients, or what is the core focus? Or is this like as long as it involves plants? and the areas you touch, whether it's molecular biology, safety, in vitro, you know, it doesn't matter. The classification to you as a researcher doesn't matter. It's just the rigor you have to maybe put behind some of the studies and the cost that comes with that rigor.
0: Yeah, um, exactly, Wilson. And so... Given that there are these different classifications now and, um, you know, starting in 2004 with a, an initial guidance from the FDA on, uh, botanical drugs and then, uh, them coming back and sort of, uh, revising the edition in 2016. Um, and so in between that time, um, I think there's been something like maybe since 2018 or so statistics say like over 800 some, some odd, uh, investigational new drug applications, which is kind of where a botanical drug starts with an uh, Mm -hmm. an IND application. Mm -hmm. And um, of those 800, there have only been two botanical drugs uh, that have hit the market. Um, And so basically, you know, in, in defining what they are, we can see how they are different or not than dietary supplements. Um, but they do allow you to make a very specific disease related claim because you're going mm-hmm. through basically the same type of clinical outcomes that you would look for for safety and efficacy with a drug trial. Uh, the characterization of the starting materials is kind of where the major differences are and since we don't have much time in this, Uh, But there have been some really good like actually on the the, uh, Sustainable Herbs program, which you and I both volunteer for. Mm -hmm. There's a really good presentation that people I know uh, Anne was archiving those. So there's a great presentation there which can give people much more information. Yeah,
1: And if anyone, you know, after listening to this wants to know more about botanical drugs and want to hear an uh, episode, just focus on that. Um, I have uh, a person that's quite knowledgeable in that, and went through always to phase two um, in the botanical drug uh, model, and we're able to work with them. and uh, The rigor and the quantification process of the starting material is just amazing, and you know, and, and the rigor and the thoroughness that's required is this on a whole different level. Um, what are some key takeaways or learnings you think we can learn from like that model adopted to dietary supplements in regards to, you know, to make sure that our product is consistently efficacious because we know it's not, you know, how we use the, you know, how we use something because there's less science or historical learning and documentation of efficacy. But it's really like, if you, you you know, if you give someone something that doesn't have any potency to it or bioactives to it, um, of course it's not going to work or you don't give them high enough dosage or whatnot. But what do you think we can learn like from the botanical drug model and adapt to the dietary ingredient space?
0: Yeah, I I think the biggest learnings, uh, Wilson, are um, starting with the beginning of your supply chain and being able to validate the raw materials um, from an identity standpoint um, through uh, their development into an extract. And what's interesting about the botanical drug development process is that They don't actually require you to um, fully characterize the uh, the extract um, or prove mechanistic function. They suggest that it's very good to do that. And I I would think that anyone with a a good application would would do that. Um, But they're really looking for um, the fact that they are close to what was used traditionally because especially if you can prove that this has been a traditionally used formula or combination. And let's not forget that once you add two herbs together, it's very complex what happens with the chemistry. And if you add three or four, it's even more complex. So um, in a formulation, it's something to consider so you know the topical botanical uh, drug from green tea developed in uh, I think it was 2006, right? That was the, mm-hmm. the first one. Very specific use for genital warts. Um, and then the second one, another very specific use from Croton uh, lechery, lechery, the um, sangre de drago or dragon's blood. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's called Kroffelmeyer, fulzac, uh, my uh, my my Tessie. There's been some different names, but the preparation is basically uh, taken to control uh, uh, symptoms, diarrhea from uh, AIDS and HIV infections. So again, really specific narrow window of usage for that um, validated by the clinical trials. So, um, you know, I, I think what's interesting is that these botanical drug products do have to be um botanicals and in the 2016 revision they de- the fda defined further what a botanical uh would be and so it could be um you know plant material a right it could be microscopic mm-hmm. fungi though that's another mm-hmm. part it could be algae or it could be a yeah. combination thereof so mm-hmm. broadens the definition a little bit of that uh, botanical uh, uh, of the definition of botanicals uh as yeah. opposed to saying herb right so yeah little distinction there, but, uh, you know, the lessons that we can learn, um, the same things that you should be doing in your dietary supplement botanical manufacturing process are some of the most important things here, like starting with your identity program and the validation of your raw materials, uh, not just for the purity, uh, meaning it's free of impurities like heavy metals, Mm -hmm. pesticides, so forth, but then, um, you know, the identity that it is what you say it is. You and I could have, uh, you and I have had many discussions about identity and uh, the rigor that that takes and the seasonal variations in plant material that are the same exact genus and species that present differently depending on when they were harvested and where they were harvested and how they were harvested and what was going on with the weather and what was going on with the farmer and the, you know, so uh, it's complex, but those are the things where We need to know what we have and we need to know in a basic way what it does, validated by either the tradition, um, but that's to be a blend of the tradition backed by Mm -hmm. evidence-based science.
1: Yeah, And, and I think, you know, one of the things that we've been talking about, I don't know, since we've known each other, is the importance of the supply chain, right? And I think a lot of the, you know the repeatability of the studies that are done comes down to the rigor of the, how they characterize the material in the supply chain, right? And and you know you can't reproduce something if you if they just tell you it's an extract of ginseng right of asian ginseng red ginseng well there, it needs to be a little bit more thorough before you can do it i think um and what do you think is the importance of supply chain for research evidence-based research like and for the repeatability aspect of things like you know how important is that
0: i mean uh it, it's of fundamental importance because we start with these uh crude raw botanicals and so you know even in our research lab when we have our herbarium set up uh we have to make sure that if we're running any of these things through bioassays, even with using standard just ethanolic extracts of them that we've had identity testing done. And so um, we outsource that to a mutual friend just Mm -hmm. because we want that third party validation. So, uh, you know, we outsource that to Alchemist and Mm -hmm. um, we have the ability to do that. We have an LCMS, we have TLC tanks and plates and so forth, but uh, we we would prefer to have that done outside. Then we start our herbarium from there. So the same way that we would test the activity of those extracts, we've got Identity validation um, and we've logged in the raw material, and then we're building to have uh, voucher specimens on file for the plant as well. And then adding, you know, the files on um, microscopy as things go on. Uh, but that's so that's you know, so if we do a small pilot scale extraction in the lab. The very next conversation I have to have as a business development person is with our branded partner or whoever we're working with is where are we going to go to get this manufactured to your. Exact specification because oftentimes what we're developing may be a little different than what's standardly available on the market. But we certainly can start with uh you know pre-extracted material and do testing on that. And you know, we could that could just be duplicated. But uh oftentimes we like to start with the whole botanical and do a range of ethanolic extracts to test activity. Um to, to we found some very interesting results actually from that. But uh so that's kind of you know, I think the know what you have and and have. Have good SOPs throughout your manufacturing process so that if there is a deviation from the from the finished product in any way safety or not you have a way to go back and track where the problem was
1: yeah and i think you know based on our conversations in the past you know we added that capability on new herbs really to Take our botanical expertise and being on the being in touch with the growers and wild crafters, and taking that ability now to do the R&D component of it, and where you know we would work with someone like you or a similar facility to do that lab scale work, right? And then from lab scale, we have partners that allow us to take that lab scale work to go to pilot scale and pilot scale to go to production scale, and you know there's there are challenges at each scale that are unique to that, and you know just because you. Can do it in the lab doesn't mean you can efficiently do it at scale, and I think that's that's the know-how, right? You have to have a lot yeah. of experience in instruction before you can take something, you know, the concept, proof of putting, proof of concept is done in the lab, but then how do you scale that, right? It's very right. important.
0: Yeah, and, and putting it back into the model of, let's say you were developing a botanical drug, you'd need mm-hmm. the actual transparency through the entire process from where the material was grown to where it was shipped to and processed and uh, through the whole uh, chain of custody, which really should be done anyway. <laughs> but um, the, the manufacturing process as well has has to be um, uh, well documented, and so I think, like you said, the intangibles here are uh, beyond just the logistics of getting that much material to make a, a product for that long, or the sustainability, or the the responsible sourcing and ethics behind uh, raising these plants during uh, climate crises around the the country that um, and and around the globe, actually. So you now it, it's um, that's a discussion for another time, but the The, the fact remains that it's harder and harder for farmers, no matter what the crop is that they're making, to make a living off doing that. And when you go down to the level of very specialized crops that we're talking about, um, you know, then the problems
1: compound, uh, so. Yeah, definitely. And I look forward to continuing this conversation and many conversations with you in the future. Um, if you're at supply side, if it happens, um, we will have an in-person panel and, uh, maybe longer discussion amongst friends, uh, and then we can can really dive into this topic of climate change and its impact on herbs thank you for joining us bill and uh, it was a pleasure as usual uh, and uh, thank you once again and hopefully we'll see you soon yeah yeah, always great to see you wilson thanks a lot
0: thanks for listening to learn more about the business of herbs and botanicals visit newherbs.com keep listening to great episodes, be sure to subscribe to this podcast in iTunes, Google Play, Amazon, or Spotify, and make sure to give us a rating too.